0: it'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com.
1: Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may
2: apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
1: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the amazing, the talented, the lovely, the wonderful THR's chief TV critic, and my partner in crime and dear friend, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan? Have you gotten over your your disdain for the island on Netflix?
0: Hey, it was a a somewhat slow weekend in terms of things I needed to watch, so how did I celebrate? I watched seven hours of a uh, Netflix science fiction show that I'm not completely convinced actually existed. I am very interested someday to read the oral history of the island, where it turns out that it was all a very elaborate tax dodge. I, I am entirely convinced the show is a scheme in some way shape or form I just don't know the financials on it
1: well that is I mean your tweets about this and of course your critics notebook about it are uh, must read and highly entertaining
0: as opposed to the show which is not highly entertaining (laughs) or must watch
1: well with all that out of the way let's get right into headlines on the development front, Schitt's Creek co-creator Dan Levy has signed an overall deal with Disney's ABC Studios. And You're the Worst Creator, Stephen Falk, is teaming with Greg Berlanti for a Showtime drama based on the book Spoonbenders. Ooh,
0: finally a TV show for Greg Berlanti. Over at Apple, they've picked up a drama based on Paul Thoreau's Mosquito Coast novel with the author's nephew Justin Thoreau set to star. I love Mosquito Coast both as a book and And as an awesome Peter Weir movie with probably Harrison Ford's best performance, folks should check out both the book and the movie and kind of looking forward to that. Anyway, on the casting front, Justified grad Timothy Oliphant is returning to FX and has uh, boarded the Chris Rock-led fourth season of Fargo. Game of Thrones alum Sophie Turner will star opposite Corey Hawkins on the Quibi thriller Survive. And Kiefer Sutherland is going to the short-form service, also Quibi, to lead The Fugitive. Yes, we needed another Fugitive.
2: Damn
1: it! In showrunner changes, SEAL team's John Glenn has stepped down from the CBS drama and lost his overall deal with producers CBS Studios following an internal investigation. Showtime's The Shy* is now on its third showrunner in as many seasons, with Justin Hillian replacing Ayana Floyd-Davis. The latter reported misconduct charges against former star Jason Mitchell, who, of course, was promptly fired from the show. And Netflix has renewed the comedy
0: Family Reunion, which you might not have known existed for a first season, for a second season, and canceled No Good Nick. After one season. Which you also might not have been aware existed. It is definitely a week for that kind of news. And it was also a week for lots and lots of library deal news.
1: Yes. If you know uh, Jerry Seinfeld or if you're a friend of Chuck Lorre or, you know, Dick Wolf, chances are your Christmas gifts and Hanukkah gifts will probably be a little nicer this year. But
0: I'm none of those things.
1: Yeah, neither am I. Netflix will be the exclusive global streaming home for Seinfeld in a five-year deal that is worth north of $500 million dollars. The Big Bang Theory has its first ever streaming library home and has extended its TBS syndication deal in a pack that I am told from high level sources is valued at in the billions, Dan. Billions. HBO Max will stream Big Bang Theory for five years. That's domestic only, as those platforms haven't even launched yet, but they are domestic to start.
0: That could come up more later in the podcast.
1: Yes. And not to be outdone, NBC Universal is shopping a massive Dick Wolf library that includes the original Law and Order, spin-off SVU, all three Chicago shows, and all other titles from the prolific producer. Wolf sources say wants one streaming home for all of it. Dan, that's nearly two thousand hours of television.
0: Ugh, that's how much I've watched already this week.
1: Yeah. Well, let's dive into this week's top five topics. Number one. Up
0: first this week, new details on a new streaming platform. So it must be a day of the week ending in Y. After months of speculation, there was a rush of details earlier this week on NBC Universal's ad-supported streaming service named Peacock after, of course, the pretty-plumed bird that Jeff Zucker used to sacrifice every year to keep the cast of Friends and Seinfeld under contract... <laughs> The service will launch in April of 2020 and will be the home for a vast library of established favorites, plus a number of high-profile remakes and reboots. Leslie, you must have written about 75 different stories about this platform on Monday and Tuesday. Tell the kids the big takeaways.
1: Well, the big takeaways is that this is a platform that is leaning very, very hard into NBC Universal's content. Ooh. So shocker. I mean, as we've talked about vertical integration and some of these big shows coming home, that's what they're doing here. So look, among the biggest titles that were revealed is a new Battlestar Galactica take from Mr. Robot creator Sam Ismail. Um, NBC's streaming service Peacock. It's going to take some time to adjust <laughs> calling that the name, but uh, Peacock will also be the library home for Battlestar Galactica. So Chances are if there's a show that you like that's in the NBC fold, they're going to find some other way to bring you in. So Parks and Recreation will leave Hulu and Netflix and stream exclusively on Peacock in a couple of years. And as part of that, creator Mike Schur has a new show with one of the stars of The Office, Ed Helms. That will also debut on Peacock. So they're basically using library titles to bring you in and new titles to keep you interested. NBC will use the Summer 2020 Olympics to promote the service, which will start in April with originals rolling out after the games conclude. Other big high-profile reboots, you got a new save by the Bell. Mario Lopez and Elizabeth Berkley will reprise their roles. And Zach Morris... Will play the governor of California.
0: Hey, he did get a 1510 on his SATs, which allowed him to get into Yale. So it all makes total sense if you think about it.
1: I mean, the fact that you know that off the top of your head, Dan, that's what makes me wonder. So
0: I'm hoping that someone will fact check in case I'm wrong, but for some reason, the idea that he got a 1510 because of how implausible it was stuck in my head. If anyone wants to correct me and tell me I'm wrong, go for it. I, I, Among the things I care about, this is not high on that
1: list. Other stuff, there is a sequel to Punky Brewster that we previously mentioned on the podcast that was being shopped and it landed at Peacock, to no surprise.
0: We discussed that a on our live podcast from the ATX TV Festival in Austin. You should listen to it. It's one of our best episodes. I assume there are no details on whether or not Glomer is going to be involved in this reboot. I don't even know who Glomer is. I told you about this in the other podcast. It was her imaginary little friend from the animated series. Boy, am I unloading a bunch of utterly worthless information in this podcast. I apologize to the listeners. No, I mean, that's
1: good. (laughs) Listen, you remember stuff like that? I remember the development deals. We're a good team, Dan. In terms of other things on Peacock, Library, 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 Friday Night Lights, 30 Rock, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Downton Abbey, and favorites from NBC Universal's cable portfolio like USA Network and E!, There's a ton here to unpack. One fun piece that uh, my colleague Natalie Jarvie uncovered is the working title for this service. It was originally, as it was being prepped, the internal code name for it was Scoony. So... At some point, if that was going to be the name, which I don't think it ever was, Freeform could have finally breathed a sigh of relief as the platform with the worst name. So, but uh, oh, not off the hook this scoony,
0: time. Oh, Scoony, quibby. it's all yeah. just how cutesy can we make our titles? So, do we have any details at all about the what the Battlestar Galactica thing is going to be? I know that folks have been sort of whispering about that one for a while, but that's one I'm curious about. I'm curious about what the remake reboot thing of say, by the Bell is going to be. I'm also curious if we're ever going to figure out proper terminology to define if these things are actually a remake or a reboot, because at this point, I'm not sure I have any sense of what any of it means anymore. Yeah. What's exciting?
1: I mean, just I mean, look, there's a, it's a new Battlestar Galactica take. Sam Ismail is exec producing it. He's not writing it. There's no writer currently attached to it. And we have no launch dates for any of these. We know that Originals will come out sometime after the Olympics because they're going to use the Olympics and that massive marketing push to promote the platform. But it's unclear if all of the stuff will be available at launch or if it will roll out slowly. I mean, there's other things that are in the works. But I mean, you know, the big advantage um, in terms of like plot details, that's all on the website. But uh, go to thrfeed.com for live feed. That's all of our Peacock coverage can be found there. In a bigger sense, the big takeaway for me is that eventually all of these library titles, they want them exclusively. Parks and Rec to start, they, they already have. That will join the office. And, you know, that's the big advantage that Peacock has over a lot of other streamers. You know, it puts it in line with Disney. And, and we're not even talking about all of the film titles that they're going to have available, too. I mean, and most of those are almost exclusively produced by Universal Pictures. So it's again, it's if you own it, it's going to come home. That's one of my big takeaways from this. And that. You know for this service they want to have something for everyone they're going to team with the film division to make tv shows out of some of their bigger titles so i would expect a fast and the furious tv show at some point they've got dreamworks animation you know if you compare this to disney plus it's kind of the same thing right so dreamworks animation is one of their their big internal divisions same as as disney has pixar right so you're going to have a different lane for everything that they've got and i mean look I'm a huge Friday Night Lights fan, and this is where Friday Night Lights will eventually stream exclusively. And if they come out with a new show from Jason Katims, which I don't know how they would do that considering he has an overall deal at Apple now, but I would be in, in a heartbeat.
0: I am also entirely here for TV Fast, TV Furious. I am completely (laughs) here also for, and you didn't mention this, but it's definitely in our notes, the uh, Amber Ruffin late night show uh, executive produced by Seth Meyers. If people don't watch Seth Meyers, Amber Ruffin is fantastic. And that's only
1: basically going to be just the monologue parts. So there's not going to be like guests or anything. And they haven't figured out how that's going to roll out. You know, I talked to Bill McGoldrick, who heads programming for the service, as well as NBC's Cable Portfolio a lot of details still to be worked out. This is a very early start and we haven't even gotten into any of the news and sports stuff that they're going to have. That's all going to be another announcement coming down the road. There's, and this isn't all the scripted that there's going to do that they're going to do. There's there's a ton other of other stuff. So I would expect more reboots or updates or spin-offs or basically leaning hard into IP. And more library.
0: And we're still standing with the idea that this is going to be ad supported, but also with the potential of an ad free tier. Yeah, we're
1: told that there's basically three different tiers, as we understand now. Pricing is not available yet, but if you're a Comcast cable subscriber, you will have it for free. If you want this service and you're a Comcast subscriber and you want it ad free, you can pay a little bit more and then there'll be a third tier where if you're not a Comcast subscriber and you want to subscribe, well, they'll take your money that way too. (laughs)
0: All of these places will take your money, however they can get it. Ain't none of a minute for charity.
1: Yeah. Well, that feels like a good point to move on to our second topic of the week.
0: Number two.
1: Batting second, the Emmys are here. After two nights of the Creative Arts Awards, HBO is out in front with 25 wins, followed close behind by Netflix with 23. Game of Thrones, to no surprise, leads all programs with 10, followed by Chernobyl and Free Solo from Nat Geo with seven each. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel rounds out the top pack with six. The major categories will be handed out Sunday on Fox in a ceremony that will not feature a host. Joining us to preview what to expect from the telecast and help you cheat on your Emmy pool is THR's senior awards analyst and host of the amazing awards chatter, Mr. Scott Feinberg. Welcome back to the podcast Thank Scott. you.
0: Good to see you guys. So let us start with the Creative Arts Emmys, which were last weekend, Leslie just read the the highlights. You know, you you work the Oscar beat aggressively, and in the Oscar world, there's a lot of precursor awards, and you can make judgments about this and that on the basis of things that came before. Is there anything you were able to take away from the Creative Arts Emmys last weekend that gives you any indication of where things are going? Is it going to be a big Sunday for free solo? (laughs) Well,
3: I think that you're absolutely right that this is really probably the best pre-Emmys indicator of how that, you know, the big Sunday night will go just because it's the only time we're actually hearing from real voters prior to the show. I think that, look, we all knew Game of Thrones would do very well with what the equivalent of below the line categories. And so no reason to expect that that won't continue on Sunday, which was what we all thought anyway. I think the comedy categories on Sunday are the most interesting because there does seem to be a real diversity of opinion. You've got People who are very passionate about Veep, which is obviously up for its final season, but only had single digits of nominations, which is unprecedented for that show and suggests that it's not as beloved as it maybe once was. And then you've got two Amazon shows that both overperformed to some extent. You've got Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which won last year when Veep was out. And we know the TV Academy does tend to sort of almost rubber stamp. uh, So, you know, there's a reason to believe they would just stick with Maisel. But then there is also Fleabag, which came on very strong for its second season. The TV Academy virtually ignored the first season, but is super into the show. And I think everybody's sort of in a Phoebe Waller bridge, you know, onto her at the moment. So it's
1: a big love affair with her, big
3: love affair. And, you know, I was talking with a few strategists today and there seems to be a uh, consensus just among them that these these are probably going to split around a little bit where Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who obviously had a cancer battle that she's come back for, for uh, you know, and did the final season, she seems likely to win again, which would mean she's won for every season of the show. But that might be a way to sufficiently take care of Veep. And then, you know, maybe Phoebe gets writing and Maisel wins series and everybody goes home with something. And I think that's
0: Plausible, but the Creative Arts Emmys didn't do a lot to clarify that. I've said in other interviews that the only thing that matters to me, honestly, is that Phoebe Waller-Bridge wins something yeah, on Sunday night. Yeah. If she if she walks away entirely empty-handed, I'm going to be pissed off. I'm with you. On the other hand, I would also like Natasha Leone to win something on Sunday, and I'm getting the feeling probably hold she's, your yeah, she's yeah, not yeah. going to win yeah. that. It,
3: the Emmys could start to feel like the show for her, where it's just if, if they can keep it up for the next few years. We'll see.
0: Well, you mentioned all of those shows, and the one you didn't mention is... Barry, yeah. which won a lot last year, and uh, the first of your brutally honest Emmy ballots went up, yes. and and that nice person who said some crazy <laughs> things, uh, as they all do, and yes. as folks do, sure, that person was going with Barry. Is that a possibility? It's
3: sure, it's sure it's a possibility. I think that if it was going to happen, a part of me thinks it would have first happened last year when it was as new and fresh and hot as ever. I think actually the show's gotten better. I'm, you're the guy that we should turn to for that. But yeah, last year, Hater won Actor, Winkler won Supporting Actor. I believe they won Writing as well. And it's certainly possible. That comedy series category, you know, it's one of those instances we're looking at seven nominees and virtually all of them have big constituencies, even Schitt's Creek. There are people that are very, very passionate about that. With seven nominees, it's hard to confidently predict anything, but yeah, it could happen. It's got it's the one H. Well, here's the reason probably the biggest issue for it in, in a way is that HBO had to split its attention between Barry and Veep. And yeah, Amazon had to do that with Fleabag and Maisel, too. But I don't know. It's a real I'm talking myself out of it right now.
1: Let's let's talk about drama. Yeah. Game of Thrones. Is that winning the big the big prize?
3: It just doesn't seem like there's any other one show that has enough support to beat it. It's not that I mean, people Succession are,
1: is the show of the moment, show but is the moment. that a little too late for, for this season? Probably
3: se- for the because the second season's really picked up after voting was well long or closed, and I think that will probably be the successor to Game of Thrones in this category. <laughs> Wordplay. Yes, exactly, exactly. But uh, I don't know. I feel like, yes, there was a lot of displeasure about the way that the final and very short season of Thrones went, but I don't know that there's one clear alternative that would beat it, and it would be a huge shocker,
0: I think, if it did lose. How about any of the acting categories? Are any of those actors going to win? Peter Dinklage has obviously won previously. Is he going to win again? Is any you know are any of these supporting actresses going to walk off with a uh, with an Emmy? How many awards do you think Game of Thrones could win on
3: Sunday?
1: And will it lead when all is said and done?
0: I would think it will lead for total wins.
3: I would think also that Dinklage is the best bet, having won, I believe, three previous times for that, but he has never faced as many co-stars in the category as he has this year. Part of the reason why Alfie Allen, I think, had to self-submit along with a few other people from the show is that I think HBO made a calculation that if we end up with too many nominees, we actually undercut our own chances. And that that is a possibility. But again, it's like, who do you go for other than him there that... I mean, Jonathan Banks is certainly deserving. You could go, but he's also up against the co-star. Anyway, I think Dinklage is probably the safest acting bet. But, you know, the best actress in a drama series category is interesting, too, because, first of all, let's note, the only actor who has ever won for Game of Thrones, male or female, is Dinklage. So are we going to start now with others winning? It's, uh, you know, there's a school of thought that says Amelia Clark has a shot that has been helped by the fact that, unlike last year, Sandra Oh now has to compete with her own co-star in that category, so there's a shot for Amelia Clark. I don't think Kit Haring. I- I'd be surprised if Kit Harington won in in lead actor and then supporting actress. There's just again so many Game of Thrones people there. Just to note, Gwendolyn Christie, who also self submitted, so they were kind of in a weird way not necessarily pulling for that to happen.
0: That one, was, that one was dumb. I mean, a lot of these, I kind of understand why they didn't push that yeah. forward. Not realizing that Gwendolyn Christie gave one of yeah. the most loved performances on that show was just HBO being weird. That was a weird thing. You got Gwendolyn
3: Christie, Lena Headey, Sophie Turner, and Maisie Williams. I don't know. I'm kind of taking a wild card there and going with Julia Garner for Dan's favorite show, Ozark, um, because <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, you know, there is actually outside of this room quite a bit of affection for Ozark. Hey, look look, <laughs> d- we did our will win, should win. Who
0: did I say should win? I said Julie Garner should win. Well, there you because go. Because she consistently is the only part of that show I like. And the fact that she is the part of that show that works for me when everything else about that show pisses me off yep. only makes me
3: appreciate her performance more. Well, there you go. And I mean, I think that her... Principal co star there, Jason Bateman, who has never won an Emmy for acting, is poised to potentially win his. His category is really tough because you're looking at basically last year's winner, Matthew Reese, is gone. The year before was Sterling K. Brown, but are they still going to, you know, are people still that enamored with This Is Us? He's also up against Milo for that show. Then you got Billy Porter, but I'm not totally sold that enough people in the TV Academy are enlightened enough to go. I mean, the nomination in a way was somewhat not a sure thing. Then you got Kit Harington. Maybe the Game of Thrones block uh, can happen there. Bob Odenkirk's never won. The show's really good. I think it would be a totally deserved win for him. But I I, I just kind of come back to Bateman with the fact that like Better Call Saul, like Game of Thrones. Well, actually, all of these guys are from series nominated shows. But I, I feel like Bateman's show actually got a lot more nominations for its second season.
0: And for the limited series category, which is one of my favorite, is it When They See Us versus uh, Chernobyl or is there something else? You know, could Fosse-Burton be the spoiler? Never say
3: never, but I would be pretty surprised if it wasn't Chernobyl or When They See Us. I think that When They See Us would be just, we should note, Netflix's first ever series win, not drama, not comedy, but limited. That's something that they've put a lot behind probably for that reason. Also, it would be probably the moment of the night if they win because Ava DuVernay is bringing along with her guests the actual Central Park Five and they would all go up. Chernobyl, though, you know, people love it. And I think critically, it is at least as if not more respected and admired. So that category to me was actually the strongest of anything this year. I thought limited series were fantastic, and you didn't even get in a bunch that were at least pretty good, but those two seem to be the ones that have emerged, and I would probably go with When They See Us.
1: Wrapping up, who's your big surprise of the night?
3: I think that there is a a real shot for Jarell Jerome to win for When They See Us in the actor in a limited series category. He's up against some real veterans who are terrific. You got Mahershala Ali, Benicio Del Toro, Hugh Grant, Jared Harris, and Sam Rockwell, but I kind of get the sense that particularly that final installment of When They See Us may have made the difference for him. There's divided opinion about Fosse-Verdon. I don't know if that'll affect Sam Rockwell. Jared Harris is great, but not really any uh, much better known, I think, to a lot of people, despite Mad Men and some other great stuff. So I don't know. I, I have a kind of a sense that we'll see if it's right that Gerald Jerome has a lot of support.
1: Wrapping up, you know, look, airing on Fox with no host, what can we expect from the ceremony and and you know for me my big my big guess and this is completely a guess yeah. not based on anything i've heard no inf- intel just a hunch sunday is the 25th anniversary of friends the cast has done absolutely nothing to promote it warner brothers has gone all out there's a an app there's you know a ralph Lauren line there's furniture at pottery barn there's an amazing lego set which i also already bought um uh, <laughs> but the cast has been relatively silent is there a chance what, what can we expect from the ceremony and i mean you know I am i even, wrong in thinking there could be a friends reunion here now
3: that you say it it sounds right i mean i hadn't even thought about it but that would be the place to do it if you're going to do it and it would certainly be a nice thing for at least broadcasts will have one moment to be happy about on the show
1: yeah uh, congratulations let's celebrate this landmark show show on TV that just sold it for $425 million to a yeah, streaming to a streamer, service. Yeah,
3: like all the others. Say goodbye. But to the you can other.
1: still watch on Nick at Night They and should have TBS. A, a
3: funeral service for all the network shows that have now gone to streaming. I mean, you're going to hear a lot about that kind of stuff, just like last year, where it's like hosting a birthday party for somebody you don't know. It's just weird. But they have signed up to do it for many more years, and that'll be interesting. But I, yeah, I think the big moment again would be when they see us, if those guys go up. Game of Thrones has you know, a final send-off, I guess, same for Veep. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, I think people realize what she's gone through in the last couple of years, personally, and also what a historic thing to have one for every season of a show and, and extend her own records with that. That could be a big moment.
1: So in announcing that Fox would go without a host, Fox Entertainment CEO Charlie Collier said that the plan instead was to allow the ceremony to celebrate a lot of these huge shows that sign off this year. So Game of Thrones, Veep, Orange is the New Black, Big Bang Theory, there were so many huge shows that ended this year. Do you think we'll actually see something like that in the telecast? Or is it really just going to be a greater focus on the winners and not playing them off with music?
3: I mean, maybe you're going to have more time without a host. So maybe they will choose to do things like that. But to me, it feels weird that you know, to do a big thing over Big Bang Theory when the voters basically gave it nothing. Or yeah, it was like a, direct, a
1: directing nomination. Yeah. Again, the lone multicam, right.
3: Mark Zandrowski. Right. And uh, so I don't know. It's a touchy thing where it, it could feel weird if you're celebrating. I mean, and then do you need to celebrate Game of Thrones beyond and Veep beyond what they're going to already get on the show? So, I mean, I but look, the, they've had plenty of time to figure this out and hopefully they've done a nice shot. I think the friends thing would be awesome. I would love to see that
0: actually happen, but I don't know if we need to celebrate shows that are just now leaving. We will see. But thank you so much for joining us to talk all things Emmy, Scott Feinberg. And uh, and hopefully some of your predictions will be correct. Yeah, I'm trying I, to think of I hope so, too. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what's going to make me happy and what's going to make me sad on Sunday night. But Dan,
1: Well, Dan, let's do that. What's the one thing that you're most looking forward to seeing?
0: I want Phoebe Waller-Bridge to win something. That is that is the thing that will make me happy is if she wins something, because the second season of Bag was so very good what would make you
3: i want to hear leslie
0: first what's
3: your come
1: on You, you guys know this already he's had a great career and the fact that he's having such a moment um not just because of the show but because of his amazing style it's long overdue. He was in one of my favorite movies. It's this 2000 indie feature that was produced by Greg Berlanti and uh, written with Julie Plec called The Broken Hearts Club. It was basically a baseball movie set in West Hollywood and based on a lot of Berlanti's friends at the time. Billy Porter was amazing in that. Oh, and, wow. that and you should look at it. Check out. Oh, check that out. he has got go a great cast. Dean Cain, Timothy Oliphant. It's an amazing cast.
3: Yeah, all the things you like in one project—baseball, right? yes. softball. Yeah, B-
1: baseball stuff. Yeah, you know LGBT stuff, yeah. relationships, brilliance. I mean, look, Billy black. Porter it's wins; he's getting a Porter's standing straight. o.
3: That's going to be a 100%. Yeah, he will make sure, and he, he gets will perform, and will... Make, that'll be. a cool And he will moment. use that
1: platform for something great, which is I'm always excited about, especially in this landscape where, where you know the country is is yeah. busy talking about you know the, the the idiot that got fired from SNL.
3: Yeah. Well, I have no problem at all if Billy Porter wins, but the thing that I think would make me happy i don't know how you guys feel about this show but i am i remain enamored with marvelous mrs Maisel, and if she can somehow top uh julia which you know i love julia too but that would be cool if the show wins again i'd be thrilled that is Shalu. a very you scott you, you think maybe, very, yeah. very you show, scott. <laughs> yeah. so that's my answer
1: well thank you for joining us thank and be you. sure to subscribe to scott's podcast awards chatter thank you guys thanks scott Up third, SNL may have found its shortest tenured cast member. Number three. This week, comedian Shane Gillis was among three new cast members set to join season 45 of the NBC sketch show. And literally hours after his hiring was announced, footage from multiple episodes of a YouTube comedy show surfaced that featured him using racial and homophobic slurs. Gillis was fired from SNL literally four days later. Four days. Congratulations, Shane. You've been on SNL for four days. That would be less than half
0: a Scaramucci.
1: (laughs) Gillis, of course, responded to the near immediate backlash with a statement in which he said he's, quote, a comedian who pushes boundaries and sometimes misses and that he noted that he was happy to apologize to anyone who was actually offended. And Dan, I, I can't read any more of this stuff. It, you know, <laughs> SNL, of course, issued you know their own statement and basically said that, you know, that they didn't see the clips earlier and their vetting process was not, not up to their standard. And he responded to that. And with some other nonsense gobbledygook concluded by taking a dig at SNL saying he was always a mad TV guy anyway. Dan, this guy's a putz. Can we just like, what do you, what do you, I mean, you are going off on this guy on Twitter. Not that much.
0: You know, look, to me, it, we, we've now reached the point at which, quote unquote, cancel culture has become as much a misapplied word by certain people as political correctness has been. I've always said that really all the political correctness was was. Actually showing some damn empathy and thinking for five seconds about how anyone would respond to anything and maybe being a decent person. Heaven help us all for being politically correct. And as for cancel culture, whatever, the guy is so damn canceled that he did a New York City comedy club show earlier this week that had Every punchline he said written up in every major publication, this is a guy who, outside of stand-up comedy enthusiasts, nobody had heard of before last week. Now, everybody has heard of him. Yes, he has probably quote-unquote refined his audience, and now the people who tolerate him are going to be the people who pay to hear him.
1: And but let's also it's also (laughs) worth noting that months ago that there was a club in Philly that refused to work with him anymore because they found his content to be offensive, too. And how
0: would anyone ever have known that? It's Saturday Night Live. How would they ever have known that he regularly says racist and homophobic things on his podcast? There was no vetting process on this. And they made the determination that he was going to be an edgy comic regardless. I mean, he wasn't even hired in their regular pipeline. You know, the guy has no acting experience. He's not a sketch guy. They were going to have to figure out what to do with him anyway. So I feel like probably what they were going to do was have him come on weekend update every couple of weeks and say something boorish. Oh, darn, we missed that opportunity. He will be fully employed, well compensated and has achieved a level of notoriety wildly outside of the range of his talent or skill set as a result of this. He has not been canceled. He has been elevated far beyond his merit. Everybody should want to be canceled to the level of remuneration that he has been canceled to this degree for being a racist Anyone who wants to tell me how the crap he said on that podcast was defensible as comedy in 2019, I am welcome to hear it. He said himself of comedy, I'm trying to be the best comedian I can, and sometimes that requires risks. Well, yes, it does. Risks come with responsibility. Risks come with calculation. If they don't, you're not taking a risk. Otherwise, you're just mouthing off. This is what happens when you take risks and you fail sometimes. I don't think being a stand-up comic gives you carte blanche. It gives you leeway to take risks and sometimes fail. If you don't want to fail, don't take the risks. Lots of comics don't. So, yeah, this is ridiculous. He has not been canceled. He is a relatively untalented person who has now become much more successful than he would have been previous to this and probably much more successful than he would have been buried deep within the Saturday Night Live cast where he never would have gotten on screen anyway. So this has all been a huge win for him, a large embarrassment for Saturday Night Live. And... Yay. My appetite is fully whetted for the uh, premiere of season 45 in two Saturdays.
1: Yeah. I mean, just the, the bigger issue for me is that I can't believe that SNL couldn't vet this guy to the point where literally hours after they announced his his hiring, it went viral. People online were able to sit there and say, I looked at some of these clips and oh, here, here he is being racist. Here he is being homophobic. I mean, if we can do that as a culture in a matter of hours, why can't Lauren Michaels and his millions of employees do the same?
0: Because he does not care.
1: Yeah. Anyway, well, let's move on. I don't want to talk about this guy anymore. Me neither. Up next, it's time for another Showrunner Spotlight segment.
0: Number four.
1: Joining us this week of the creator of mega hit and recent streaming record setter, The Big Bang Theory, Mr. Chuck Lorre. After the nerdy comedy starring Jim Parsons signed off in May following a 12-season run, Laurie returns to the multicam space with CBS rookie Bob Hart's Abishola. The comedy, which reteams Laurie with Mike and Molly's Billy Gardell, is Laurie's third show on CBS and fourth overall joining Mom, Big Bang Theory prequel Young Sheldon, and Netflix Golden Globe winner The Kaminsky Method. Welcome, Chuck.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Let's start with this week's big news. Big Bang Theory officially has a streaming home in what I'm told is a multi-billion dollar deal at HBO Max that includes, of course, an extension of the TBS syndication deal. Looking at this, these escalating library prices, Seinfeld just went for $500 million exclusively to Netflix. What do you think of, of the, the insanity of the landscape of, for library content?
2: It's going really fast. It's hard to understand what's happening. That number, by the way, is, that's just silly. Um, it's a fun number, but it's ridiculous. I, I wouldn't hold on to that number. But a few months ago, there apparently was no marketplace for uh, for shows that had their run on network television. It was That syndication market was gone. And now suddenly another market has stepped in to replace it. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> yeah. think it's wonderful that the shows have an afterlife. You know, you, you don't want to make a show that's a, a Kleenex, you want to make a handkerchief, something that gets used more than once.
1: Have you heard about how some of these streaming deals are impacting syndication? Like, Big Bang is a monster hit in syndication. I don't,
2: I, I, I don't have any. There's no information, as, as far as I know. No one's given me any, any information as to either or not. It's, uh, it's uh, helpful, hurtful, or neutral to uh, shows running on, uh, on cable. Not everybody has streaming service, so I mean, the price you pay to watch Big Bang on TBS is you watch commercials. That's that's the cost, and that's uh, and that's always an option. You can watch it for free.
0: Well, I'm curious what your awareness is of something like that because I know that when the finale came around last spring, I was like, okay, I'm now going to go back and I'm going to rewatch the pilot, and there was nowhere to watch the pilot of Big Bang Theory last spring. Had you go been buy a
2: DVD? Away- go buy a DVD. <laughs> It'll send you home with a DVD. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which didn't help me last May, though. Like, did, like were you aware, Do you though, still
2: have a DVD player? I totally still have a DVD player. <laughs> I too, love getting yeah. DVDs. Yeah. Same.
0: But had you been aware that this was something where, you know, yes, it was obviously in syndication and easy to watch in that form, but that it didn't have this avenue that people had been looking for?
2: I, I, you know, I really wasn't thinking about it. I, you know, last last spring and last winter, all energy was devoted to, to bringing the show home as best we could, or in thinking about the business. We're just thinking about how to land a plane that we were in for a long time.
1: Yeah. And now that you you know are, of course, firmly ensconced in all things about the library sale and syndication and your overall deals coming up, as I, I understand it, next year, when that market is exploding too, how aware are you, are you of, of these insane trends and how fast the landscape is, is changing I read, and involving? I read,
2: just like you do. I, I read about it. It's changing. It's changing quickly. I'm really blessed. I, My main focus is on trying to make television shows that I want to make, that, that I'm excited about, that I, you know, I get up in the morning and go, oh, boy, I get to go to work today. That's, I'm lucky that way. I get to do that. I I'm not worried about, uh, you know, the rent's covered.
1: But knowing that the overall deal landscape that creators are getting of varying degrees of pedigree are getting eight- and nine-figure deals, mm-hmm. I mean... What do you, first of all, what do you think of that? And knowing that your deal's coming up it's, too, it's, ha- have you already started talking about that?
2: Hooray for capitalism. I, you know, p- Nobody pays anybody any money unless they expect to make money by doing so. If a big corporation is giving somebody a tremendous amount of money, it's because they anticipate that the odds are in their favor to make a significant amount of money. That's that's fine. I, I personally think it's w- wonderful when, uh, when they bet on riders. I just think that's Great. That's just, that's, that's terrific. Where should that money flow to? You know, they can use it to build buildings, I suppose, but you can give it to Shonda or Ryan or somebody like that, that they make television shows. They make great television shows. So, terrific.
0: Now on a practical nuts and bolts level, what is your day look like? You have all of these shows that are in different Forms of production, levels of production, post-production. How do you sort of spread your time through those shows?
2: Uh, I, For the last year or so, I've been trying to understand uh, the uh, the magic of delegating. <laughs> and we're really at a point now where uh, Mom has an extraordinary writing staff led by Jim Baker and Nick Bakai and Warren Bell. And it's a deep staff. And, uh, and I get to consult on the scripts and the stories and the outlines and whatnot, but I'm not in the trench anymore, and uh, and the shows are turning out great, and the same thing's happening with Young Sheldon. A good part of the Big Bang writing staff moved over to Young Sheldon after Big Bang wrapped, so that's now a a deep bench, and Malero, Steve Malero is uh, one of the best writers I've ever worked with in my career, and he's got it. You know, I, I get to play in that sandbox, but the heavy lifting is being done by uh, Steve and Steve Holland and Eric Kaplan, Maria Ferrari. It's just, it's a, again, it's about delegating. Otherwise, uh, I couldn't go on and do other things. I couldn't do the Kaminsky method. Uh, I, I, you know, it just, there's just not enough hours in the day.
0: Would well, you say that was something you've been trying to do in the past year. What were you doing previously in terms of delegation, and why was and what was the point at which you said I need to figure out this other skill?
2: Um, I was running around like a crazy person, and I was exhausted. And uh, when I got sick, I'd stay sick. You know, that that you know that respiratory thing that happens, like the showrunner's disease. (laughs) You know, and it's it's real. (laughs) It's just it's a result of exhaustion and stress, and I didn't know any other way to do it. I I didn't have any other skills uh, other than, you know, try and be nine places at once. And uh, that's just not a good way to live. And the work suffers. You don't do as good a work if you're stressed out and exhausted.
1: So you're balancing a number of shows on broadcast and you have Kaminsky Method on Netflix, and of course that followed Disjointed. What did you notice uh, after your first experience in streaming as some of the key differences?
2: Well, I had a sort of a hands-off situation with disjointed um, that was something I was trying to support someone else to do. Kaminsky was my baby. That was something I was really close and important and, and valuable to me personally to, to get done. I loved it. I liked at this point in my life being able to learn stuff I don't know. There was a lot of stuff I don't know. I didn't know anything about the film world. I mean, I'd been working in front of an audience for 30 years. I got to tell a story without going to commercial. I'd never done that before, so the, the writing was always designed to somehow try and please God, hold the audience through four minutes of pharmacy commercials. I mean, it was it seems like it's all drugs now. So it's drugs, <laughs> drugs and beer and cars and, yeah. and cars. So the writing was always kind of defensive to try and keep the audience from leaving during those. The shows are under twenty-one minutes now, or something like that, with the uh, nine minutes of commercials.
1: That's
2: insane. So working in the uh, in the streaming environment, I just tell the story. And and it didn't matter if the story was 34 minutes or 24 minutes or 27 minutes. Just tell the story the best you can. And on episode four, there's no question that the audience, if they're watching four, have seen one, two, and three. So the stories can flow. They don't have to stop. In other words, in network television, I was trained. For good or ill, I was trained that you can't anticipate that the same audience is with you every week. It just doesn't work that way. I always try to make the shows the episodes self-contained that if you happen to not watch Two and a Half Men or the Big Bang Theory or any one of these shows for a couple of weeks and then turned it on, you didn't feel like you're you'd come too late to the party. You could watch the show and enjoy it because the show, you know, allows you to enter you're walking into a moving river, but in the streaming universe, the moving river is right in front of you. All, you know, the whole season's there. Uh, I didn't think I'd like the binging approach. First of all, it's a terrible word, <laughs> but that approach is like chapters in a book. You can read a book. You can sit down and read a book if you have the you know the wherewithal to sit down and just read the book, chapter after chapter after chapter. You know, and that's not network television the chapter approach changed the way you write you know something happening in episode six is uh, it can be seated in episode three and 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 you know the audience has experienced it because otherwise they wouldn't be it's no one turns on uh, you know uh, the Kaminsky method and goes to episode <laughs> six they run through them in, in order and uh, like you would read a book that's uh, that was terrific
0: well how long does it take to retrain your brain out of the 21-minute four-act, five-act structure, and then after you've done it and you've been like, ooh, this is fun, what's it like going back to it?
2: It's helpful, actually. Huh. It, it really has helped. It's another tool in the toolbox that, that wasn't there before. I mean, now when I'm sitting, at uh, uh, you know, listening to a table read for Mom or, you know, working on a script uh, for young Sheldon, um, it informs it. I have another way of looking at this, how the scene might play that I didn't have before. So... Uh, You know, the the, uh, cliché of the old dog and the new trick, it's true. I, I, You know, it, it really did impact on the way I work on the other shows.
1: Has your Netflix tenure allowed you kind of, in your mind, to think of what the cable and streaming versions of are shows like Bob Hart's Abishola or even Mom might be?
0: Do you ever think, okay, you know, this is... Sheldon is sort of the single cam version of Big Bang Theory, for example. So do you ever think in your mind, OK, if this episode of Mom were on Netflix, here's what it would look like. You know, here's here's the thing I didn't get to do. Here's the C story I had to excise because I didn't have 29 minutes, etc.
2: No, I, I, I think you respect each one in the environment it's in. And uh, there are certain boundaries and restrictions in network television. And they're there. They're not a secret they're easy to understand, that you may not like them, but there they are. I've long ago learned that the restrictions can make you crazy or they can make you dig a little deeper. They can make you work a little harder. The language restrictions and the, and the, and the, uh, the different broadcast standards issues, the timing issues, the, those infernal commercial breaks, you have to work a little harder to try and uh, to, uh, attract an audience and hold an audience. That's Okay. That's that. I'm totally grateful that I didn't understand the extent of how saturated television was when we uh, did Kaminsky, and, and it got an audience. It, it found an audience, at least, you know, it, it would appear that it did. I mean, the Netflix people seem to be happy, and that's pretty much, that's, that's the Nielsen box. If the, if, if the Netflix executives are happy, then uh, then uh, that's a success. Well, do you like that? Because you've
0: trained yourself to sort of wake up the morning after and hear what the overnight Nielsens were and all of that. Is it
2: a relief that no one tells you that?
1: And do they? And what do they tell you? They tell you they're happy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine you know. because at the end of the day uh, I'm doing this so that I, I, I'm proud of what we do I, I'm doing it because I believe in it I, I've for a long time believed that it's impossible to it's pandering to suggest you understand what a large mass audience might do how they might respond or what they would like or what they won't like so you, you make a show that you're, that you love I make a show that I laugh at. And then all I, the only thing left to do is hope that someone agrees with you. And that's that's a simpler process than saying, I know what they want out there, which is just beyond arrogant to presume you know that. Who knows that? No one knows that. You know, and the, the history of television proves it over and over again. Things like become enormous successes that no one saw coming. And, uh, you know, it's, it's you know the, the the idiot box version of the Beatles. You just don't see the Beatles coming.
1: Yeah, I mean, and even when when Big Bang Theory launched, it wasn't a hit right out of the gate. I mean, you reshot the pilot, right? We recasted, you know, recast it, totally redid and, the yeah. pilot.
2: The only thing was the same was uh, Jim and and Johnny, and we still didn't understand what we had. We you know it was still a learning process.
1: You know, in this fractured landscape, we've got five hundred scripted shows plus. I mean, what it's got to be upwards of a thousand unscripted so many opportunities to cater to people's attentions: video games, movies, Mm -hmm. books, obviously, so much. But in this fractured landscape, how hard have you found it to cut through? And when you think about, you know, you're four months now removed from Big Bang Theory, 12 seasons, 200-plus episodes of television. Do you think in this landscape that shows that run for more than 10 seasons are becoming a rare breed?
2: Every time somebody says, this is over, something happens, and and suddenly it's not over. It may be different, but it's certainly not over. And uh, and the amount of television that's on, I kind of liken it to walking into a supermarket. If you're complaining that there's too much TV, then you have to walk into a supermarket and go, too much food. Why? There's just too much choice here. There's too many frozen pizzas. Let's simplify. No, it's... You, the other way to look at it is go, look at all this food. <laughs> you know, this is fantastic. I want, you know, um, let's have some cheese in the crust. Um, <laughs> and again, you, you can't, there's no way to ferret out or, 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 or manufacture a way that cuts through the glut. It's simply not what we do. We try and create good stories with intriguing characters. And in the comedy space, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I think laughter is critical. That's the deal you make with the audiences. if you watch this, then, then perhaps laughter will ensue. If you don't honor that contract and they don't laugh, they don't come back. You're done. And whether it cuts through and finds an audience is entirely not in my power. That is above my pay grade.
0: Well, talking a bit about your new show, Bob Hart's Abishola, you came to... TCA press tour wearing an immigrants make America great hat. And the subject matter is it's strange that it, you know, simply immigration as a phrase has become politicized, but it has. And so I'm curious if this feels to you like a different version of a Chuck Lorre show in that sense, if it feels like almost to some degree, a blending of the Chuck Lorre who makes these wildly popular sitcoms, but also the Chuck Lorre whose title cards at the end of episodes occasionally are passionate, outspoken, and a little angry at times. Does it feel like that at all?
2: Not when we started. <laughs> um, no, I, and and I wasn't. I, we never were looking to write a show about immigration. Immigrants, different thing. Immigration's a verb. You know, it's a process. It's a political situation. Uh, immigrants are people. I'm not making this up. I'm not saying it is a political statement, but they are, in fact, the building blocks of the country. There's no way to look at history any other way than, say, without immigration, without immigrants working and creating this country. There's no country. I wanted to honor that. I think it's worthy of our time to to stop and, and admire the ambition and focus and discipline that it takes to come to a strange country... Where you may or may not speak the language, learn the language, get a foothold, and create a better life for yourself and for your children and grandchildren. Why isn't that a terrific area to write about? And and to find the comedy in it, which turned out to be a, a, an absolute delight. I, I'm just loving writing and producing this show. I mean, we're having a blast. The cast is phenomenal. Falake is going to be a big, big star if there's any... if there's any justice in this world, uh, she's going to just blow up. She's just an extraordinary actress.
1: So speaking of, you know, you worked with Billy before, obviously, Mm -hmm. on Mike and Molly. Can you talk a little bit about finding Falaki and what that casting process was like?
2: Well, this whole thing started a couple of years ago with me talking with Al Higgins about how much we loved working with Billy on Mike and Molly. And we kind of felt like, We didn't, you know, I don't know if he got his due. If he did, he get the acknowledgement we thought he deserved because we think he's special. He's just, you know, he's a very funny comic actor, but he brings a great deal of heart and a a vulnerability to what he does for the big man role. And uh, so that's how this whole thing started. How can we find a way to work with Billy again? Also because we really like Billy. He's just a terrific guy. And then, uh, I, you know, it's a very tortured kind of road that led to the idea that a middle-aged, stressed-out American businessman becomes enamored with a Nigerian nurse after he comes through a, a stent procedure in a hospital. But when we decided to do that, and it felt like a good path, it felt, it felt like territory worth exploring. It felt, it felt new. The smartest thing I did was I said, we can't do this unless we find someone who can help us, because we, we just don't have the background for it. We just can't make it authentic. And I don't want to be glib about it. I don't want to, you know, make believe we know what we're talking about. So uh, Al and Eddie Gorodetsky found um, Gina Yashere on YouTube doing a stand-up in uh, London. And we watched it and went, uh, okay, yeah. And we contacted her and asked her if she'd come out and consult. You know, tell us what to do, what not to do, you know, how to create a character, a a, a, a family of Nigerians who are working and making their way in this country. And she was here for like a couple of days, and it quickly became apparent that we couldn't let her leave. She's awesome. She's a great comic voice. She knows how to make people laugh. She's a skilled comic stand up and she's got some chops too and so there was an opportunity to get her in front of the cameras as well and we just said uh well, how would you feel about staying and just writing this thing with us so we wrote the pilot with Gina i think we had a structure we had a we had the thing you know outlined out but we didn't even we weren't going about to write it without her and that that worked out great cuz she was she was the, the missing ingredient that made this thing make sense
0: have there been any particularly good moments that you remember that she, where she sort of has educated you guys on what not to do? <laughs>
2: so many. It's, uh, endless amounts of things. One of the things I love about the show is very much from her childhood is the very deep respect that uh, Nigerians have for their elders. And uh, it's just never questioned. There is no rudeness there is, uh, you know, and it's very much kind of the way this country used to be, you know, in the fifties and, and, and earlier. You you didn't mouth off to people. You didn't, you know, you didn't, you know, you, you, you spoke to your parents. Yes, yes, ma'am. You know, no, sir. You know, yes, I'm doing my homework. You know, there was there was not a lot of back talk. My generation actually it was the beginning of the end for that. Um, <laughs> but um, here's this culture that honors the elder, you know? Her son makes her breakfast in the pilot, not because he's for some kind of attaboy. He's just working. He's helping. He's of service to her, and she is constantly having to be of service to her auntie and uncle who provided her with an opportunity to come here. So that changed the whole dynamic and um, deeply, deeply focused on education and achievement. You know, Gina's mom, what's her, the, the, you can be four things in a family. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a disgrace to the family. <laughs> right? And so is an electrical engineer. She was, you know, sneaking out at night to do stand-up. I went, oh, that's just too good. You know, that's just really too wonderful, you know, that uh, our mom's proud of her now. But, you know, wait a minute, you're trying to make people laugh as a as a job? That's insane from that perspective. So that, that changed the way we were doing this.
1: Yeah. You know, in, in terms of where you see the vision of the show going, how political do you plan on getting, if at all?
2: I don't see politics getting into it. I, I, I honestly, I, if you can't tell a story about immigrants being a, a fundamental goodness to this country, then you can't write about the country. I, I, how do you do it? Which of us aren't the uh, second, third, or fourth generation of someone who came here, you know, with little or next to nothing? So, if that's political, we're in trouble. Well, but we do have a
0: we do have an administration where immigration officials are rewriting Emma Lazarus on the fly on news shows. So, yeah, but we just you, may
2: be. I can't get into that. That's, you know me. <laughs> I don't comment on these things.
0: <laughs> well, but again, that's sort of, in, that's sort of end title, Chuck Lorre, because uh, entitled Chuck Lorre sometimes I'm being, has. I'm,
2: so. being, I'm being, I'm being facetious. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a whole other conversation, but I, I don't want it to get in the way of people just enjoying this cast and, and the show. I, I hope, you know, they, they see it for what it is. It's Billy likes to say it's about human kindness you know, it's uh, there's a, there's a sweetness to this thing that I'm. I just, you never know when you start that that's going to be what's happening. But there's an undercurrent of affection through the whole thing. It's not just jokes.
1: Yeah, I, I want to talk about the vanity cards. You know, twelve seasons of Big Bang Theory. I'm and obviously watching all of your shows. I'm I'm trained and programmed to hit pause on my DVR to read every vanity card. If I miss them, go on the website. But you always have so much to say in those. After Big Bang Theory, I wonder, uh, or even now, as you look to what comes next after um, Abishola, have you been tempted to make something a little bit more serious, maybe leaning into some of those thoughts that you voice in the Vanity Cards?
2: I think there are people out there that do, it much, that, do that sort of thing far better than I. And there are some people that do it really well, and I'm, I'm in the process of trying to help them do it. But uh, recognizing my limitations and, and recognizing their strengths, if I'm in a position to help push somebody over the goal line and get them into this thing, I think I just did that sports metaphor very badly. <laughs> but um, I I am, I am uh, engaged uh, in talks with a journalist who's I think could be uh, a big voice in that arena, but uh, not my voice, his voice.
0: Well, one of the things that's been notable about Mom over the years is that it's a show that's been able to, in certain weeks, not have jokes at all for the most part, where it's been able to simply say, this is a subject that's too serious for us to be, you know, doing the same rhythms as every week. What has that show kind of taught you and trained you to do to sort of recognize that you don't need to have X number of punchlines per page or whatever?
2: You know, it's interesting. Uh, It taught me something I guess I forgot that I once knew. I, you know, I knew it on Roseanne in 1990, 91, 92 when I was there. I, I knew it when I did Grace Under Fire. The pilot of Grace Under Fire was a single working mom who's coming out of a physically abusive marriage, and the pilot story was she was afraid her ten-year-old son might be a chip off the old block because he gets into a fight at school, right? and she's afraid that he might have that anger in him that her, that the abusive missing father had. That was in 1993. That was a real story, you know. And we told some real stories for the short time I was there. I just did the one season, so I I knew that. And I you know and I learned you could tell real stories on Roseanne. That was a great training ground. You couldn't write on that show back then and not become a better writer. You know, it was boot camp. You know, you got it was tough, but you, you left a better writer than when you arrived. Certainly, that's how I felt about it. And you could write about substantial things you know roseanne was we did an episode about uh, birth control in 1991. you know i mean without without the clout that she had we couldn't have done that we could never have told that story back then it was it was just like radioactive so so i knew how to do this i knew that this was possible and somehow over the years between the dharma and greg and two and a half men journey through the wilderness I, I forgot, and I learned again on Mom that the audience will stay with you if you tell a good story and you're honest and, and you treat a serious subject without being glib, you know, and without being disrespectful. If it, there are certain moments you just got to understand that to, to write a joke here would be just callous. So you let it go, you let the scene play as is, and the audience and the studio audience, they're fine. They, they're not, they're not, you, you haven't cheated them out of anything, they don't feel cheated, it, it's the dramatic moment played by great actors like Allison Janney, Anna Faris, you know, that as live entertainment, it, it works fine, and, I, you know, I, I guess I had maybe gotten insecure about whether or not uh, the audience would stay with us, and over the years, so the, the shows were broader, and it wasn't necessary.
1: You know, listening to you talk about shows like Grace Under Fire specifically, it, you know, in describing just the premise of that, which is obviously something I, I, I loved watching before. But that's the show that could be on in this landscape. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we're in the middle of reboot culture. Mm-hmm. Um, has that thought crossed your mind, whether it be for Grace or something else you've worked on? No. <laughs> Once the book is closed, it's closed.
2: You know, it's exciting to try and make stuff up it's it's you know it, what a what an incredible gift it is to to say well, what if and make something up and create a whole universe of characters and, and then be if you're lucky find the actors that take it to another level and then step back and go oh okay i, I think there's a show here you know and sometimes you don't really know and you kind of learn as you go i i, I always have felt I didn't really have a full understanding of what was happening on the Big Bang Theory for about two years. I didn't understand, you know, the how vulnerable these characters were, how naive they were, how the audience felt protective of them. And uh, anything that was characters that were cruel to them, the audience just wouldn't have it. They just wouldn't have it. And the show couldn't go into risque areas. The audience didn't want it. They were like children, and, and and material had to reflect that they, their naivete. And that was a learning process. Just, I, who knew?
0: Well, with your single cams, do you miss having the audience reaction to know something like that? Because you don't obviously know on Young Sheldon or on Kaminsky, that, you know, the, the visceral reaction that mm, an audience would have to something. Honestly, somewhere.
2: no. <laughs> no, because now I'm doing something that I get people who make films and short films and feature films have known. For decades and decades, I'm just now learning that this environment allows you to make the show you believe in, and that's the show. There is no feedback other than your own sense of right and wrong. And if you're wrong, people will turn it off, and, uh, and you hopefully didn't hang too many pictures on the wall, because you're going home. And if you're right, it works, and people enjoy it. And that's coming to trust myself. Because for 30 years, I've been trusting a live audience. It's worked out really well. That live audience was a good barometer. You've been to shoot nights. Yeah. We don't move on if a scene doesn't work. We don't move on to the next scene. We keep working on that scene, even with the audience sitting there.
1: Yeah, you see the huddle.
2: Yeah, we huddle around the quad and we rewrite it and and try it again. Try it again, try it again, until we find something that catches and that the audience responds to. And the audience is very much a litmus test of hopefully how people will respond at home. But when you take the audience out and you're just shooting what you've written, that's an act of faith. That's an absolute act of faith because you have have no sounding board like a live studio audience.
1: Yeah, you know, wrapping up, I always enjoy asking this question, but in this crazy cluttered landscape, What are you watching? What do you subscribe to, platform-wise?
2: I I mostly watch dramas. I I just, I I love, I I love watching big dramas. And of course, you know, Sunday night, Leave Me Alone, it was Game of Thrones. Just turn off the phone, go away. I mean, the comedies, uh, the comedies that I've fallen in love with recently, and I, God, I hope she keeps doing it. Uh, I know she said she's not, but Fleabag (laughs) was, I think, perfect. You know, as perfect as you can get. It was just funny and elegant and meaningful and just, uh. ah. You know, when Silicon Valley first came out, I went, wait, really smart guys hanging out. Uh, I don't think I'm going to like this. (laughs) And I fell in love with it. It was brilliant. And it stayed brilliant the whole run. But the dramas, um, man, years and years. Did you see that? And, you know, I've become fascinated with secession and... Oh, yeah. um, Our entire office is Get Shorty. How good is Get Shorty? (laughs) You You know, it's just Ray Romano is just, you know, that whole cast. It's just so well done.
1: Well, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us. Bob Hart's Abishola debuts Monday, September 23rd. New seasons of Mom and Young Sheldon follow September 26th. And Kaminsky Method season two arrives October 25th on Netflix thanks chuck thank you chuck thank you number five as usual we wrap things up with the critics corner with the emmys this week comes the start of the traditional fall broadcast season which means there are a bazillion new and returning shows coming back to the big four broadcasters since there are 13 yes 13 new broadcast shows launching in the week ahead dan let's do this speed dating style what do you say
0: Let's see if I can keep my reviews to these two under five words. Five words are under. Let's say five words are under. We were initially going to do one word. That was too difficult for someone who writes a thousand words per review. <laughs> All
1: right. Well, let's start with CBS. They've got five new shows next week. Bob Hart's Abishola from Chuck Lurie. Uh, Dan Hart's Abishola. Series. Eh. Uh Legal drama All Rise. Great cast. Series. Eh. Uh The Unicorn. Walton Goggins as a single dad. Series. Eh. Really good cast, though. Carol's second act starring Patricia Heaton. If you like that sort of thing. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't.
0: <laughs> it means that there is an audience out there that loves Patricia Heaton, and I think they will probably be happy with it. It is really fairly hacky, but not like in an offensive way. It's just very broad and hacky. That was too many words. All right, well, let's wrap things up. The King's new show, Evil.
1: Lots and lots of potential still yeah, let's move to ABC. They've got three new shows: Blackish prequel, Mixed Dish, Mixed Dish, Mixed Dish, Mixed Dish. I did it three times in a row. Not what bad. do I get?
0: That, I don't know. I think it means the Candyman's about to stab <laughs> me in the neck or something. Um, let's see. Okay, back to got to get back into under five word mode. Uh, not funny, but interesting. Yeah,
1: Emergence with Allison Tolman. Better than other ABC lost knockoffs. Uh, Stumptown, Colby Smulders. Great cast. Don't know what the series is. Uh, moving to NBC, Sunnyside from Mike Sure. Great cast should be funnier. Uh, legal drama, Bluff City Law with Jimmy Smits. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, what, what, what you were saying? Sorry, I just killed Leslie. <laughs> sorry, okay, okay. okay. All right. Bradley Whitford, church choir comedy, Perfect Harmony. Season applaud in the pilot. Okay, and Fox, of course, they are focused more on midseason. They launch only one during premiere week, and that is *Prodigal Son*. Amusingly crazy, weekly dramatic. Yeah, well, there's so much more happening on the broadcast side. Dan will have capsule reviews of a lot of these, posting in the in the days ahead. I'm gonna
0: have full darn reviews of most full of reviews
1: these. on all of these. Good grief! Maybe Dan. Not all of Do them? you sleep? Not
0: all of them. We'll have some reviews written by the great Tim Goodman and some reviews written by our great freelancer Robin Barr. But mostly, no, I don't really sleep all that much, Leslie, but that's what the drugs are for. Good grief.
1: Either way, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
0: Feel free to subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, leave a review. It's how word of mouth spreads. Come say hi to us on the Twitter. We like to say hi to people and hear what listeners are thinking. And if you have actual questions for us for future mailbag segments, because sometimes weeks are a little bit slower than this one, you can email us at tvstop 5 thr.com. That's T-V-S-T-O-P, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
1: Until next week, Dan. Get some rest. (laughs)